you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 1. Continue looking at the witness that John bears concerning Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's join our hearts together in prayer to him before we look in his word. Lord, I come before you and just own before you my unworthiness. I thank you for your grace to me to take away my sin, to bear it. I thank you, Lord, that you are the Lamb of God, sent from God. As we saw in John chapter 1, from the very bosom of the Father. To come to this sin-cursed earth. To live a completely righteous life. You knew no sin. And yet you were made sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in you. Lord Jesus, you truly alone are worthy. Worthy of all praise and honor and glory. I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we study these words this morning, that you would teach us. That, Father, your Holy Spirit would convict, correct, comfort, Comfort the one who feels that burden of sin. Point them to the cross, Lord Jesus. May they see you high and lifted up. I pray that, Father, as we come to terms with your plan and who you are in your word today, that you would be magnified and glorified. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are talking about the man... John the Baptist and the witness that he bears. You will notice with me, in verse 19 it says, and this is the testimony of John. Last week we looked at this verse in Luke chapter 3, these verses, verses 1 to 3, when it tells us that it was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, while he is out in the wilderness. John then goes into all of the region about the Jordan and he is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He says of himself, I am a voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare, make straight the way of the Lord. And so he is sent from God, as it said earlier in the chapter, in verse 6, he is a man sent from God on a specific mission, sent from God to prepare the way for the Messiah. In Malachi chapter 4, Keith read this to us, there is this prophecy. And as we studied last week in Matthew 11, in Matthew 11 we saw that Jesus says of John the Baptist that he has come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so at the end of the Old Covenant, The prophet Malachi 
prophesies and says, look, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn. Now think of the word to repent. The word repent means to turn. To turn, to have a change of mind that results in a change of action. And so his ministry, this Elijah-like prophet, John the Baptist who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, will have a ministry that will focus on repentance and it will cause the hearts of the fathers to be turned. And they will turn from pursuing themselves and their own pleasures to the pursuit of the heart of their kids. And the hearts of the children will be turned to the fathers. Otherwise, he says, I will come and I will strike the land with curse. And all of this was what we looked at last week, setting the stage for where we go today. You will remember we mentioned that there are three occasions in this chapter now where John does exactly what he said he had come to do. He bears testimony to Jesus. The first one we studied last week, Jews are sent from Jerusalem, from the scribes and the Pharisees. They are hostile. There's turf wars going on here. They're like, who are you? Why are you baptizing? Who do you think you are doing this? Out here in the wilderness, away from the seat of power in Jerusalem. What are you doing? So they come with hostility and they try to undermine the ministry of John, but he bears testimony to Jesus, the one who is coming. I am the voice of one coming. In the verses we study today, he gives witness to the gathered crowd. These people are curious. Some of them will become followers of Jesus. Many of them will not. The third occasion, what we will study next week, is when, once again, John bears witness to who Jesus is. He says, Behold the Lamb. And he turns the eyes of his disciples away from himself, and he turns them to Jesus. And he says to Andrew, He is the Lamb of God. Follow him. And so his ministry enters into a period of transition because now the Messiah has been manifested, now Jesus has revealed himself, and now John understands that his ministry is no longer to just go about doing baptism the way he was. Now his ministry is to bear witness to Jesus in a literal way and to say, he is the Lamb of God, follow him. Don't follow me. And we see that transition into the ministry of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice with me the text today. It begins in verse 29. And I want you to notice this first phrase, because it becomes important, important to us as we harmonize the Gospels here for just a minute. It says, the next day, the next day, after what we just studied last week, the next day, John sees Jesus coming toward him. He says to the gathered crowd, Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. That's going to be the crux of the message this morning, although there's much else in this text. But he says, Behold... The Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Why does he rank before me? Because he's better born? Because he comes from a better town? No, he comes from where? Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why? Why does John say, this one ranks before me? Because he was before me. And then he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, it remained on him. I myself did not know him. Notice that that's the second time he says that. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend as a dove, as we see in Matthew, it is on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, this is the Son of God, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Now let's do a quick harmonizing of this account. Three times in this chapter, it will say the next day. Jews are sent, the next day we read what we see. In verse 35, again it's going to say the next day. In verse 43, it's going to say the next day. And then when we get to chapter 2 and verse 1, Jesus goes from where he is to Cana of Galilee and he manifests his glory in his first public miracle, which is the turning of water into wine. And it says it is on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Why is it important that I draw your attention to that? The reason is this. What we have just read in verse 29 to 34 is not the account of Jesus' baptism. John is referring to it, but he is not, it is not happening at that moment. It is not in that text. You say, how do I know that? Well, here's how I know that. Next day, next day, next day, third day, Cana of Galilee, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will find that when Jesus is baptized, what happens immediately after he comes up out of the water? The Spirit drives him where? Into the wilderness, and he is there for how many days? 40 days. What happens during those 40 days? He is being tempted by the devil. He has been fasting. He has not eaten, and Satan is buffeting him. So here's what happens. John baptizes Jesus. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and Jesus then goes into the wilderness, and for 40 days he is gone. 
and John has continued his ministry. John is still on the edge of the wilderness baptizing. And in verse 29, he sees Jesus coming to him. Where is he coming from? The wilderness, where he has been for 40 days, tempted by the devil, and he has fasted. How many of you had a long fast? You missed a lunch? Think of 40 days. Think of 40 days. We talked about the wilderness last week. This is the armpit of the world. It's not, it's not the Teton wilderness. This is rough, barren, dry, remote country. Jesus has been living without food. He has been living without a bath. He's been living a rough life, being buffeted by the devil, going through a period of his life and ministry unlike any other in its difficulty except when he gets to the cross. And as he is coming back into civilization, what we see now is John sees him coming. And he says to the crowd, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I guarantee he didn't look like the King of Kings and Lord of Lords at that moment. He looked pretty rough. He looked pretty tired. He probably looked pretty beat up. He looked pretty hungry. Behold, the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. Now let's consider some things about what happens in Jesus' baptism. Look with me in Matthew chapter 3 for just a minute. You can go there or you can look on the screen. Jesus comes from Galilee. He comes to John at the Jordan. He comes for a very specific reason. Jesus comes to John, notice the reason, to be baptized by him. Initially, John resists this. John tried to stop him. Jesus is getting in the tank. Jesus is getting in the river. Jesus is coming to John. I need to be baptized by you. I want to be baptized by you. John tries to stop him. Why does he try to stop him? I need to be baptized by you. Yet you are coming to me. Jesus says to him, allow it for now. Because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's a very important phrase. Jesus fulfills all the righteousness that God requires of us in living a sinful human life. We'll talk about that with the significance of why Jesus was baptized in just a minute. Then, after Jesus makes that statement, John allowed him to be baptized. After Jesus was baptized... He comes up immediately out of the water. The heavens are opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming down upon him, and there comes a voice from heaven, almost reminiscent of what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration as well. A voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son. I delight in Him. 
What a moment that had to be. Think if you were with the crowd and you were on the beach and all of this goes on. And then Jesus leaves. He leaves and he goes into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days. Now let's think about Jesus' baptism for just a few moments this morning. Why did John initially resist? We saw it in that text. John also mentioned it in John chapter 1. The apostle John mentions it when he said to Jesus, you know, I am not worthy to unloose the sandal, uh, the, the, the strap of your sandal. You come before me. I am not worthy to do this. I need to be baptized by you. I have no business baptizing you. And so he initially resists because he understands even though the Spirit has not yet descended and he has not heard that voice. Yet in that interaction of the moment, John knows this is the Son of God. And so he initially resists. Jesus counters. And then John consents. And so we have to ask ourselves, why does John, who initially resists, all of a sudden say, okay, I'll do it? Well, the reason is because Jesus said to him what? Allow it for now. Permit it for now. Because this is the way for me to fulfill all righteousness. So, one of the reasons Jesus lived a life of 33 years before dying for our sin was to fulfill all righteousness. To live a perfect life. To completely perform and live up to the standard that God required of all of us. And in his baptism, Jesus does something that is amazing. He does something that he will do again when he goes to the cross. And that is he associates with us as sinners in a way that is astounding. Vern Poitras says this about its significance. Jesus' baptism is an act of humility. In his baptism, he consents to be counted as if he were a sinner along with everyone else. Everyone else has been coming to John to get baptized, not because they're a good person. Why were they coming to get baptized? Repentance of sin. Cleansing from sin. It was a baptism of repentance. And now John baptizes Jesus, and Jesus has never sinned. Jesus is the purest of the pure. Jesus is the holiest of the holy. Jesus Christ is complete righteousness. And yet he comes to John and he says, I want to be baptized by you. And John says, well, I, no, no, what? I should be baptized by you, not me doing you. And Jesus is saying, what? No, I have come to bear the sins of humanity. And one of the ways he does that is going down into the water of baptism, associating with sinners like us, and being baptized just as the people were in the Jordan River in a baptism of repentance. So it is a tremendous act of humility when the God of gods, the God of the ages, the King of kings, stoops to be baptized like a sinner of all of us. And so Jesus' baptism is an act of humility. 
in this text, I want you to notice with me, at the beginning of it, in verse 29, it says to us, the next day, after having interacted with these hostile priests from Jerusalem after having baptized Jesus at least 40 days prior. The next day, Jesus comes toward him. And John says to the people, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want us all to look at that phrase for the rest of our message this morning and to think about what is being said here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's some questions I wrestled with as I thought, but what does it mean to behold Him? Why does He say behold? Why does He say look at Him? Does he just want them to see him coming? Is he just drawing attention? What is he saying in that word? Look. Behold. What does the word picture lamb? What is that expressing to us? Why does he say he is the lamb of God? What does it also mean when he says he takes away sin? What did Jesus come to do? You will name him Jesus. Why? He will save his people from what? Their sin. Jesus came. God came to earth to deal with sin. What is sin? How does he take it away? And what does it even mean that he takes it away? What does that mean? We finished few weeks ago studying the book of Romans. It was a long study. Central to it at the beginning was the concept from Romans chapter 3, verse 23. When we found there, what did it say? For all have sinned. And sin is what? Falling short of the glory of God. When I talk to you each week, I know some of you enjoy football. I know some of you drive Dodge trucks. I know some of you like to hunt. I know some of you women like to cook. There are things I know are true of some of us. There are also things that God's Word tells me are true of every one of us. And so I can say with complete confidence as I speak to you today that every one of us has sinned and finds ourselves under sentence, just sentence, of Almighty God. That's not some of you. That's not some of us. 
It's me, and you put your name on it too. And the Lamb of God came to take away that sin. Let's pick this phrase apart for a minute. Number one, he says, behold. Behold. There could be a command in the original language. Behold it. But more likely, the way it is expressed by John, it is an exclamation. You're driving down the road. And as you're going down the road through the canyon, the spring has started to come and the side hills are melting. And out on a bare side hill is a massive bull elk. And as you're driving along, guys, keeping your eyes on the road, you notice this elk way up on the side of the mountain. And you say to everyone in your car, Behold the bull! Is that what you say? Well, probably not. You say, look, look, look at that elk, how big he is and how beautiful he is. And you stop the car and you pull over and you tell everybody, look at that. In a similar way, John, John the Baptist is saying to the crowd that is around him, look, look, the Lamb of God. Oh, we are astounded. By big elk, big rams, and big vistas. But a little lamb. Look at the lamb. A look of faith. We will see this later in our study in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he is telling him he needs to be born again. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says to him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will not perish. Now think with me of the story in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, there have been fiery, it says fiery in the old King James, but it's just poisonous serpents that have been unleashed upon the camp because of the rebellion of the children of Israel. And people are being bitten by these snakes and people are dying. And there is no antidote to save their life. And Moses intervenes for for the people before the Lord. And the Lord says, put on a pole in the middle of the camp a bronze serpent. And when anybody is built bitten by the serpent, which every one of us has been bitten by the serpent of sin, have them look at the snake on the pole. And they will live. If they cut an X on the bite and suck the... They're going to do what? They're going to die because of their own effort. Their own attempt. In order to live, they have to do one thing and one thing alone. And that is to go into the camp, into the center of the camp, acknowledging that they have been bitten and place their soul, hope, and faith in looking 
at a snake on a pole. And if they will do that, they will live. And if they try anything else, substituting their own human ingenuity and effort, they will die. Look to the Lamb. Any human effort, any human ingenuity, and you will perish eternally. Look alone to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Think with me of the picture of the Lamb. The Lamb is very expressive when you think of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, it tells us in verse 4, He Himself bore our sicknesses, He carried our pain, but we in turn regarded Him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But He was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment that would result in our peace was on Him. And we are healed by His wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. The Lord punished Him for the iniquity of us all. And then it tells us later in Isaiah 53 that is a lamb is silent before it shears, so he opened not his mouth. The whole sacrificial system pictures, as we saw before, and foreshadows the ministry of Jesus. These people well understood on Yom Kippur, on the Passover, and in relationship to individual sins that they committed, the sacrifice that God required was a lamb. It was not because that lamb took away their sin. It was because that lamb pointed to the culmination of the sacrificial system, which would be Jesus Christ. It tells us this clearly in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, there are two essential realities that are associated with what we see here when it tells us God takes away your sin. God takes away my sin. And I want to show them to you quick this morning because it's important we understand what he's saying. When it tells us Jesus, the Lamb of God, will take away our sin, the first thing that he is pointing to is it means he will forgive it. He will take it out of the way. He will bear it for us and remove the punishment that it deserves. He will take it away. Hebrews 10 is very important in this regard. In Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us that the entire Old Testament was a shadow of what was to come. And it says there, the priest is offering the same sacrifice year after year and day after day, and yet those sacrifices, it says clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, notice verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible. 
the blood of the bulls and the goats and the lambs and all the things that were done in the sacrificial system did not take away sin. And then he tells us in verse 11 to 14, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time. And they can never take away sin. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And then it says at the end of that section, thus, through that sacrifice, we are forgiven. When you read here that he says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, he is telling you first and foremost, it is through the sacrifice of Jesus that your sin can be forgiven. And apart from his sacrifice, there is no removal of it. In Psalm 103, it tells us this. As far as the east is from the west... So far, he has taken away our sin from us. That was written a long time ago, before telescopes and everything else, and mathematics the way we understand them, and satellites. We now clearly understand that if you travel north, you can only travel so far, and then you will be going south, right? If I set out and I begin to drive my car or I begin to ride my horse, I am eventually going to reach the North Pole. And when I reach the North Pole, when I go over that, I am then headed south. The distance between north and south on the planet is finite. But if I got in my car or in my plane and I began to travel to the east, not that I have a plane, but I began to travel to the east, I would never hit the east. If I got in my plane and I began to fly to the west, I would never hit the west. It's like in geography, not geography, geometry, a line, a line that stretches infinity. And he says, as far as east is from west, So far, he takes our sin from us. He removes it from us. He remembers it against us no more. Why? Because he is perfected forever through one offering for sin, the conscience of those who trust, who behold, who believe. The second thing is, he was revealed to take away sin means he breaks the power of sin. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, he says, You know he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. And in 1 John chapter 3, he says, If we know him, if we have been born of him, his seed remains in us, and it sanctifies us, and it changes us, and he came to destroy the works of the devil, and so it is... The reality is the taking away of sin is he has come not only to forgive you of your sin, he has come to break its power in your life. So you do not have to live under it. 
You do not have to be controlled by it. But as you live your life in Christ, you are being sanctified and set apart by the Holy Spirit, as we see in John chapter 1, that he has come to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And his spirit in our life is a spirit of transformation. So he has come to take away our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are told that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. So behold the Lamb of God. Look to him and him alone. Place your hope and your trust eternally in what he has done, not in what you can do. And he will take away your sin. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word and the truth that is in it, a truth that sets us free, a truth that sets us free from bondage. Holy Spirit, I pray that if there is someone here today that is sensing in their spirit, by your spirit, their need to be reborn, I pray that you would help them to simply do what it says, what John said to do. Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. May they look and live. And we trust you to accomplish that by your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name.